In November 2023, the New York Times achieved the 10 million subscriber target it set in the Digital Publishers Innovation Report in 2014. How was the New York Times able to achieve this target? By staying true to its editorial values of covering national interest, product bundling, and several acquisitions. What lessons can publishers learn along the way? And is the New York Times on track to hit its 15 million target by 2027? As part of the special WordPress seven-part teardown series, Jeremy Freeman and Vahe Arabian explored the New York Times, one of the longest-running newspapers and a prolific digital media publisher. Over to you guys. Hi, and welcome to the final episode of our teardown podcast, uh, teardown WordPress site series. I'm Vahe, the founder of Sales Publishing, and my, I have with us our co-host Jeremy from from Multidots. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? Doing well. I'm excited to dive into this beast called the New York Times. What's what's leading us to look at New York Times, Jeremy? I think um, from my perspective, obviously, it's always been, particularly since the 2010s, considered a darling of the uh, publishing space due to after when they published the 2014 Digital Publishing Innovation Report about sort of their how they saw the culture of publishing um, trending and how they want to proceed with uh, transforming the business. They've done that, they exceeded their expectations, and now they're doing a lot more interesting things in the space to be actually able to um, be not impacted from the macro trends that we're seeing a lot that we've spoken about quite a few times. So uh, before we go into the strategy and nitty gritty, which I think we all would want to go to, let's have a check on the website. So Jamie, what, what did you see from your end when, as you scroll through the website? Number one, right when you're on the website, right? Uh, out of all the sites that we've done a teardown, it is the one that reminds me the most as if I'm holding a print uh, actual newspaper, right? Uh, there's just so much uh, to dive in. And when you grab the New York Times, right, if it lands on your front door, newspaper boy or girl throws it on your doorstep, you're going to hear it because it's thick. There's a lot to unfold directly there. Um, so that's number one. Uh, Number two, uh, when I was in the process um, of peeling back all of the different layers, you can go into so many different segments. If you care about games, you're right into the game section, cooking, the cooking section, um, sports, the athletic. Um, so that was another thing that kind of caught my eye uh, that people can really segment down based on their interests, uh, opposed to just the homepage itself. A lot of people probably have it bookmarked or saved or subscribed um, to certain sections. And that's why they subscribe to the New York Times so they can have access to the things that they really care about, oppo opposed to the whole enchilada. Yeah, Nick, as you can see in the navigation, like for every single section, you have a newsletter and a podcast, a newsletter and a podcast. So they're really trying to, as much as they're going broad they're also trying to uh cater to those dedicated audiences as well yeah and if anybody is not subscribed to it uh you instantly uh specifically in different regions i'm sure that they are testing this uh, but here us when i was in it i'm not a new york times subscriber as of now um, you're instantly getting hit with the gated content uh, and it's very big very prevalent uh, it's in your face so they're leading with that as far as the subscription options um, very 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 strongly uh, more strongly than some of the other uh, large publishers that we've seen and that we've dissected exactly how about yeah. your end anything anything strike you as you're looking at it well i think yeah i mean we we know new york times to be very strong 
in terms of the US, um, there is some, like me being uh, visiting the website from Australia, it is showing uh, the international versions and everything else, but um, it's interesting that they still haven't, um, those attempts in the past to be able to go internationally, but I don't think that strongly has worked as, as well, but they're still trying to cater to it, which is positive. Um, so we, we could talk about a bit of the strategy afterwards, but I think that's, that's one key thing that where I think there's a difference versus uh, maybe you, when you're visiting in the US. And uh, yeah, I think as well, you know, we've spoken about in the past with the other websites, how potentially doubling up on the navigation isn't, isn't a good thing here. But what, what we can see here though is um, more of a, a smarter use of using both the hamburger and the other website in terms of, um, you know, they're, they're really trying to um, show their um, taxonomy, both in terms of the hierarchical topics, with terms of the categories and subcategories, but then they're using this as, as the, um, the sort of just, juxtaposed uh, topics that are related to lifestyle, for example, or the, the human aspect of it. So, uh, sorry, I'm just trying to break, uh, collapse the menu again doesn't seem that that's so that's that's one issue right you can't collapse yeah. the hamburger menu very easily but i agree with you uh, i was pretty impressed thinking through how much content there really is to do the original solution architecting to be able to set it up so that when you hover over the primary navigation menu that it's yep. still divided in a fashion that it makes sense Right. Yep. And as you're going through U.S., right, the sections are uh, underneath of the U.S. drop down. It's sections, U.S. politics, top stories, newsletters and podcasts. If you go over world, right, then the drop down navigation again is sections, top stories, newsletters. So it's a slightly adjusted underneath a business. Then the navigation menu is Section, top stories, newsletters, and podcasts. And then if you get to arts and lifestyles and opinion, um, opinion is one that I think we could go over to because it's really about the columnists. So they want to find a particular opinion piece and people are really drawn to this author, this journalist, their particular opinion. Um, and so I think that's one that I haven't seen as far as an opinion dropdown item with as much emphasis on the particular journalists that are helping produce that news. Uh, and that just shows, you know, the depth of quality and trust and allegiance that some people develop for particular individuals who are writing these pieces or these articles. And so I found that pretty interesting. That's been a big conversation point as well. You know how eventually many of these columns become uh, independent uh, media writers and um, you know create their own mini publications on Substack and such. It, it does come from the inspiration of being able to leverage their audience that have, they have built up on, whether they've built it up themselves or through these publications like New York Times. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely has shown its worth and value and and the, uh, fuels the creative economy that way as well. So, I think that's been interesting, and I think as well just to top off the the menu as well. What's really important as well is that um, some of these topics as well that they're showing us top stories might not be, I mean, you know, they're going to be trying to lean towards the trending stuff, which is fine. But um, they also, which also ties back to what A.G. Uh, Schuberger, the publisher, said, is that they're trying to be uh, 
just providing quality around the, the topics that matter to the audience, um, which is the, primarily the US audience. So we can see here how uh, stock market business, even though we're in business and I'm, I'm visiting, uh, I mean, sorry, I could go to the US international section, but you see for the US, our top stories are relating to these three areas and, um, you know, the top two stories in the world, like, you know, is, there's, there's probably a lot of other things going on in the world, right? But Israel, Hamas war and Russia and Ukraine was the two top ones because that's something that's been covered in the election year. So um, they're being very specific on what they're going to be highlighting as the most important top stories to, to, to matter for their audience. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if you're looking at a pulse of what's happening in the U.S. or the world or business, arts, lifestyles, you can get a tap of that just by going to the New York Times and hovering over the navigation menu. You don't even have to go any deeper than that if you just want a 10,000 foot overview. So yeah, that's a great call out. Perfect. Yeah. So uh, I think you, you had noted something as well around the site search, Jeremy. Yeah, let's go ahead and just try to do a little search, uh, search for any particular topic you can think of. Uh, Trump election. Trump, Trump sorry. So now one of the things uh, that they have is they're showing 144,872 results for Trump when it is searched. So the very first thing is you can look by date range with the dropdown. So a lot of people are going to want the most recent news, right? When you're talking about a newspaper, I don't want to find something that is all the way back from the inception of 1851. I want to find something that was published yesterday, past week, this month. So that's the first dropdown, uh, which I like. Uh, it's going to be very topical to the date. And then the next one is going to be section. So under section, it again goes down to all those main sections, arts, books, briefings, opinions, sports. So it's very clear how you can divide it in. And then the last drop down menu itself that is going to be available is type. So maybe some people prefer to listen to audio, right? Maybe some people want to listen or read the articles. Uh, maybe some people want to watch a video. So I like the three different ways that they have the filter options. Uh, and then they just have the standard sort relevance. But as you're scrolling down on the search page, this is something that I found very intriguing is they have advertisements every so often. So let's say every 10 slots, they'll insert an ad. So they're generating revenue in an interesting fashion on their search page. A lot of people, because of the depth of the content here, are going to be doing searches. But they have a little section that says, have search feedback, let us know. And so when you see that, collecting feedback about your search page, because it's so often used if you're a large publisher, is invaluable. Because if you collect that data, you're going to find out what users like and what they don't like. It's a very simple thing to be able to do. Anybody can collect user feedback, but I just don't see enough people collecting that user feedback. So I think that small but strong call to action snippet can make a world of difference if you actually collect the data, analyze the data, and then take action based on the data that you collect. Fundamental, that's very fundamental advice, and that's uh, very well noted, Jeremy. Um, you can see as well, though, like there's two things that I'm finding be interesting as well. Like the articles aren't sorted by that necessarily. It seems like they're being um, a bit more prioritized based on uh, the categories uh, rather than the ranges or the type of content. Because, for example, the politics article in the 15th, the first result, maybe, yeah, it seems like there's more of the emphasis on the weighting on the title as well. And then we've got more of the. Um, 
as we're scrolling down, I noticed that there's some articles in the like 18th here, so the the sneaker content that they was writing about uh, was uh, that they're trying to sell. Um, it's, it's been at the bottom of the page here, so. He's trying to um, he's trying to sell some three hundred and ninety nine dollar gold sneakers. He needs some more money to build some golden Trump towers. <laughs> he's got a big bill to pay. He's got bills dollars, to pay. Bills to pay. But yeah, I'm just curious what you think. Why that might be the case? Like, are they maybe using the categories or section type to prioritize? Um, I would have a feeling. My my gut assumption would be that they are using some sort of prioritization based on X amount of days. So let's say any articles that are 30 days or newer, and then based on the volume uh, of actual traffic that those pages are getting. I could be completely wrong, but my guess would be they're trying to show things that have hit the most popular articles first, because I don't see any sort of categorization based on, hey, it's in this particular section, or I don't see that it's based on chronological most recency. Um, I see that everything seems to be happened within the last X number of weeks. I don't see anything older than 2024 when we're doing this in February. Um, so that's what I would assume. I'd assume that they have some sort of metrics and they're trying to surface things that are popular articles and show them at the very top. I mean, you got a lot to sift and sort through when you're showing 144,000 plus results for a particular search. No, that's that's. Uh, thank you for your insights on that. I want to ask you another point on, on, on your insights on this as well. So, remember how we looked at Macworld and they started to incorporate an AI assistant search result and was literally answering the question for you or just trying to find um, the relevant article based on your question that you had. Um, you know, we talked about the importance of quality feedback. Uh, do you think that for a website like New York Times that, that they should start considering this or? Is that something that might be going against the brand, or do you think that just maybe it's a big project to implement and it's taking a bit of time for them to do that? I guess maybe not not to feed you the answers, like suggestions of what to, how to answer, but like what do you think as to why they haven't incorporated smart? I would say number stuff? one, um, I would imagine that they are doing something with AI in one facet, shape, or form of their business. They've got to be right. It's so large. It's so vast. It's such a massive team. Um, I think that in general, they have a large enough language model where if they'd want to create their own AI, they could. It depends if they want to invest in that um, LLM or not and how powerful they want it to be. I would imagine that there's a lot of testing that needs to be done in order to be able to ensure the accuracy. One of the things that I know with the New York Times is they care about the quality of the content that they produce and they might not have had enough confidence level with AI as of yet they might be waiting for it to unfold just with, if you use AI, right? I think I've read some statistics that um, individual uh, white collar workers, when they're using AI, they increase their productivity by about 37% as of now, but they decrease no. their accuracy by about 20%. So mm. do you want to increase the amount of content that you're producing, but yet are you willing to sacrifice the quality of content? And that might hold true here in the search results so um, i think it's, it's a battle that you have to be weighed if i'm thinking just in my value system of the new york times i don't want to decrease the quality because i'm knowing to produce high quality content and that would hold true in my value system with search that's my personal preference um as far as how i'd answer that question yeah i mean especially since like we, we saw that they've got 
even the digitized content from 1851. So it definitely needs a, a big consideration and a, a proper uh, consideration and implementation towards this if they're going to do this. So. Talk, talking about 1851, if you uh, do me a quick favor and go to the very bottom of the page, go to the site map, because this is something I found wild, right? Um, it really tickled my fancy uh, when we're getting down to the bottom of the site map. So we click on it and wow. we go to the years and if we scroll all the way down to the bottom, it has we can go to the 1851 site map. <laughs> the internet was not around in 1851. So they've taken so much time, energy, and effort that they've archived their print newspaper versions. So you can go back and see the articles, the homepage of what was produced all the way back in 1851. This just blew my mind. Uh, I thought it is just another testament to the quality and their dedication of producing content and sharing content with the world. Um, yeah, you, you can click and you can view like the actual page of the newspaper from 1851, which I just uh, found fascinating. No, that, that's awesome. You're in Texas, first articles in Texas, yeah. about the Texas top decision. That's it's, it's, it, it, it's kismet, so it's all, it's all coming together. But um, <laughs> uh, what I was gonna say, we can see here as well as we interact, uh, sorry, with the sitemap strategy um, that they're taking implementation, Please take a note, everyone, as well. That's like particularly for, if you have in-depth content like that. That kind of segmentation really, really helps to help prioritize um, your internal linking, your site architecture, internal linking structure, to help the more new content to get picked up, and and also to avoid the, all the content to get dropped off completely because it has uh, it's not going to become an orphan page when the site goes uh, um, goes off. So if you do get to the point where you are, I mean, many publishers, if you get a, at least uh, between fifty or hundred thousand, if you're around around the range already, it's best to to consider trying to implement some some kind of solution like that, so that you can avoid having um, your articles become orphan pages, basically. So that's one quick tip there. So we see as well here on the screen that we've got the access to yeah the login page. They're, they're taking a similar approach in terms of they're giving a metered approach with, but you have to jump in and. Uh, log in using your email so they want to capture the email uh i wonder why yeah it looks like they're using a very clean solution as well it looks like they're using um is it earth earth to, to the logins or something or maybe they're using the custom login approach to do this but yeah they're, they're doing that so um and, and, the, and the call to action it's uh it's something that's a, a soft call to action, right? It's create a free account. So they're not like, you must pay us, whip out your wallet right now, yeah. enter your email address. They don't even ask for your first name. So they are making it easy in order to be able to navigate in. But it also, right underneath in that subtext, it says gain access to limited free articles. They're also giving themselves the boundaries. Limited could mean you get access to two articles, or it could mean you get 20 a month. Right, you have no idea what that parameter is. Um, so they really want you to take that first action step, make it so it is an easy action step for most people to be able to take. Um, a lot more people are holding on to their email and their privacy uh, a lot closer closer to their chest in today's day and age. Um, but yes, uh, it is it is a strong item where it is constantly prevalent on the screen. Um, but at least it is easy to access if you really want to read that article. A lot of people, if they've seen the title they've read the first paragraph or two if they're really drawn in 
I would imagine that they're going to be entering in their email address so that they can read that one article that they were interested in initially. Or even on a subconscious level as well, like if we take back, take a step back into the history of the New York Times, like a lot of times, as we were discussing before, like during the Second World War, World War many of these newspapers were a, a pastime activity in addition to catching up on the news. And I think the New York Times is really triggering to that as well. So, hey, like, you know, you can just jump in. You can have a connection with someone else, play some games. Maybe you can listen to a podcast. Don't you? don't feel as um disconnected with the world and this is that's the value exchange in return we just want simple email and then they can just yeah like many large publishers that have scale give you like a small cost per acquisition um amount to to, to subscribe for a limited period of time and then they'll eventually bundle and upsell you with more, more products i guess yeah let's dive um, into what their subscription page looks like that's always interesting to see let's do that Yeah, some massive discounts. Yeah, well, uh, normally six dollars and twenty-five cents a week. You're going to get it for fifty cents a week. Build as a two dollars every four weeks for your first six months. So I'd imagine that they've A, B, C, D variable tested the heck out of these offers, right? Most publishers, if you're going to be finding what works well, you've done extensive testing. Um, they also have that subscribe now button. It's black. I would have made it a different color. It'd be a simple thing to test. But on the right hand side, if you're not watching the video, um, they actually go through all of their main sections like, hey, audio, wire cutter, the athletic for sports, um, the New York Times, um, games, cooking. So all of these things, for me, that's a little bit jarring, but also it's so jarring that it makes you want to sit and watch it. Um, so maybe that black, it doesn't contrast with some of these colors that are going on, but I would see that as an easy thing to be able to AB test. I think any other color besides black, since it blends in with the page could work better for that call to action button. But I also think that they've done a good job with saying cancel or pause anytime it's right after that button. So then again, it's taking that more soft approach. Um, so that's at the very top. Um, if we scroll down, it shows, you know, other different subscription details that you can, uh, learn more about and what you're going to have access to. So you're going to have access, all access is what they call it. And I think that's their big subscription tagline, right? Get access to all of it. And as we talked about before, it's that whole enchilada, everything. And so they really want you to go with the all access is, uh, is the, the primary thing that they always lead with is what I noticed on the subscription pages. Yeah, games, cooking, audio. Yeah, I, kind of, I, think, I think you did it. You're on top. You're on the game with checking out the images and seeing what was missing so we've got that all there and then we've got um the also in print as well to to find out offers and, and bundle from that respect perspective so they keep it very simple straightforward but that and... print offer right it's it's kind of tiny it's at the very bottom of the page it's not that prevalent so even mm. though one of the things i said at first is like the heaviness of the new york times like if you go into places if they're carrying newspapers oftentimes that newspaper a physical print newspaper is going to be a very local newspaper or it's going to be like the new york times right so it's still something that people do have delivery service for but from their website they're not really focused in on saying like hey let's get print subscriptions print subscribers they do have 
yeah, I mean, sorry, they do have a link to the, today's paper, but you're right in saying that they're just primarily focusing on the bundled subscription because they know that people are looking for value. Um, this is for them like a hit in terms of cost per, cost per acquisition for that user. And they're going to be able to, if they get them to buy once, they'll probably buy again. Yeah. Considering that they're going to continue to add new and new things on, the, on their menu per se uh, to do that. So, yeah. Um, Could we dive into, um, if you scroll to the very bottom, I think there is a, a spot there on the subscribe page where you can yep. actually just click on um, subscribe offers. And they have like group subscriptions and home delivery and then gift subscription. So if you click on gift subscription right there, um, yep. I thought that this gift subscription landing page was really nicely done. Um, and I think the New York Times, as far as a gift, is a unique, thoughtful gift. Um, and it's going to be something that I would imagine gets a decent amount of revenue um, because the fact that it's a gift that keeps on giving, right? You give it one time and it's straightforward. You buy it for a year. So it's like, oh, I know my friend loves New York Times games. I'm going to give them a subscription. Or I, I know my friend loves cooking or my family member, right? My loved one. So um, I love this page. It's nice and simple um, to give a gift. Uh, and I, I really like the way that it's done um, across the board. The other people, yeah, I'm curious as well. Like um, there'll be other, maybe it's because they have a strong brand proposition, but other people to incentivize people to give a gift, they would might might give them a reward in return, but they literally just um I think it just reinforces the fact that bundling multiple products, if you have strong products and bundling bundling together, would outweigh so much than trying to incentivize um people with one product by giving a referral offer. We see a lot of those referral programs not working. And this I think this really validates that point. Like we've seen the bigger publishers even why cut out like they don't need those kind of referral programs to, to make that happen. So yeah, and another thing that they, they're doing well is their digital strategy. They're stripping away other options. If you land on this page, you have one yeah. goal. Your one goal is you are gonna buy a gift. You have no other distractions, no other navigation menu things at the top. Here's the landing page, here's the one strong call to action. And I think it's something that it's it's one oh one marketing but i don't know if people get lazy or they simply forget they often will create a landing page with call to actions but they will continue to remain and keep all of their other navigation elements on that page so then they'll just change the body copy opposed to it to be a, a real true destination and a landing page or splash page whatever you want to call it that has one goal for the user to do and uh, New York Times has remembered to do that. Um, so, you know, hats off to them. Uh, I'm glad that they're, you know, using the strategies that uh, are tried and true. I think it might be also because, you know, there used to be in the past a perception if someone didn't do that, having the menu and the template, that they might be trying to be a bit deceptive. But I think what really shows you here is that people have short attention spans. Like if they're coming on this page, they're likely going to be ready to, to purchase or subscribe anyways. Like you just have to really seal the deal. And really focus on making the reinforcing the offer, making it very simple and straightforward. That, that all they have to do is just click and um, buy it, buy it. So, yeah, I think hats off, like you said, Jeremy, to, to New York Times for just keeping things simple. And then one yeah. last thing in the subscription, I don't know how we exactly get there, but um, if we go into games, and maybe it is going to be at the bottom of the um, page, 
um, NYT Games. Um, so if we click on that, as far as a subscription option, this was yeah. another interesting thing that you can subscribe to everything, or you can get access only to games. So they always have two options. So it's like all of the times or games only. So mm. then it's going to change the price. So the all the times, it'd be $25 a month in this particular offer. Or if you just want access to games, and that's the only thing that you care about, the cost of that offer goes down to $3 a month, right? So $25 a month or $3 a month, that's that's a drastic difference. So they are giving the user the ability to be able to make the choice to serve their needs to fit their budget as well. So I like that um, because they do have so many different offering types. You can do the same thing. Hey, two options for cooking, two options for games, two options for all of these subsets. Um, so I really like that uh, because some people might just love their games, right? So a little um, snippet and a story about their crossword puzzle. So back in the 1920s, uh, everyone in the publishing industry thought crosswords, ah, that's just a fad, not going to be much. But then there was a massive event that took place, right? Devastating event of Pearl Harbor. And so what one of the editors did uh, in the 40s is she decided to introduce crosswords back into the New York Times as a way to distract from all of the chaos that was going on in the world. And then guess what? It stuck. They thought it was going to be temporary, but everybody loved it, right? They would go and seek out the Times for how amazing their crossword puzzle was. And now yeah. that strategy has continued to balloon, right? Now they have many different game offerings. I just had uh, not very long ago in January of this year, somebody was showing me, hey, have you played this game from the Times? You've got to check it out. It's so fun. I play it every single day. So I think it helps them reach more of a younger audience as well with these games. So people become addicted to their games and their quality, just like their print quality, their crossword quality, or their other games that they offer are amazing. It might be one new one that they have every single day, but guess what? You're going to come back to that publication. That's going to boost your numbers. It's going to boost your audience. And you're going to get people who don't care about articles in your print, but you, they do care about your games. So I love how they've continued to capitalize on games all the way back from, you know, one thing that took place in the 40s. And now the New York Times, when you think about it, you know their quality of their crossword puzzles. And some people just care about that. And with that, let's, let's, I think, I, I don't have additional things to add on to that. So let's, let's see the impact of that as well, because uh, we, as we all know that, um, and there's a vanity article in this, that it wasn't because of world that they like suddenly, although it was a good uh, timing and coincidence that they acquire, acquired world, but they were actually looking into, this is part of their um, strategy to go to the next level from growing from 10 million subscribers to 10 15 million because they achieved that target and um you know the world came along it became popular viral and then they started to build on and now they have a games department that constantly just creates new games and and wow. now they have an advertising department that just um focuses on finding new ways to continue to engage those audiences across the different verticals and 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 so forth so do you know when that wordle acquisition took place it was in 2021 2021 okay so quite recently yeah, it's two years ago. So let me let me they have the chart of the numbers here. Um, let's look at let's look at our favorite tools uh, for our podcast listeners. We always look at Ahrefs and we look at similar web in terms of the traffic. Um, so 
just waiting until Ahrefs loads a little bit, but um, yeah, it's too big. Okay, let me, let me go to the overview page to show you the trend. So you can see around end of, okay, sorry, not 2021, 2022, beginning of 2022, but so they're getting on average 66 million organic users per month. It jumped up significantly since the acquisition. 400, it jumped up significantly for anybody who's not seen this from 66 million to at the peak, 468 million. That's not just a 2X jump. That's not a 10X jump. That's a crazy wild jump. Like you don't see those spikes every single day in business. And if you see that in your traffic numbers, me, oh my, it's a happy old day. And uh, whoever made that decision to make that acquisition is probably getting a couple pats on their back and uh, maybe a nice little bonus paycheck that's going to put their family in a, a great Christmas destination. <laughs> I'd say so as well. I, I don't think the pat on the back if I, it was, it would be enough. Like you said, so hopefully they're getting a good bonus. But um, obviously we know that the trend died, but it's become it's become more stable. They integrated Wirecutter as well in their business as well. In the, into it, rather than being a separate site, they integrated into the main website as well as a separate offering. So we can see the pure traffic impact that that's had. Um, and but it's still stabilized you... at what was that like two hundred and twenty million or so per month? So yeah, still correct. pretty solid number. I mean, this is way higher than any of the other traffic numbers from any of the other sites that we've looked at. And again, it just shows you how much of a beast the New York Times is. But look at look at look at the percentage of how much it's actually driving Wordle, 62 percent. Oh my goodness, sixty one percent of that, one hundred and forty million of that monthly traffic is coming directly from Wordle. Let me Crazy. let me just let me segment quickly uh, the total percentage of the games because I'd imagine that um, yeah, I mean that's going to be more than obviously sixty one is just for Wordle, but I want to see the quickly the other ones how much this making an impact. So altogether, 152, so 220, out of the 220, 152 million is coming from games. Wow. Uh, there's a, sorry, actually, that's, that's not 100% correct because there's a bit of mixed results with um, game reviews and stuff as well, but most of it is related So let's just to... say 150 million out of 220. So that's still around 68%, massive amount. Yeah, yeah. 100%. So it's it's definitely a key. I think it's going to be a great funnel for them to continue to get to that fifty million target for sure. Wow. Do you know how much, by any uh, chance, how much uh, that Wordle acquisition was? Oh, you got me. We'll add that into the notes, into the podcast notes, the exact number. I think it, 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 I don't want to. Um, I think it was around sixty-eight million, but um, I'll just double check. I'll double check again. I remember it was 68 million, but I'll just double check. All right, 68 million. I mean, uh, to drop it... that much in traffic, uh, it's it's worth it. How much ever they paid, it was worth it. Yeah, that's only organic search traffic, and then the total site traffic is 636 million visits per month, and the traffic's only going up basically. Um, and yeah, CNN's close behind. Okay. But. But we we can see, sorry, in, on the screen for our podcast listeners, we're looking at some of the top competitors that similar was brought up, Washington Post, Guardian, Reuters, and CNN. It seems like the CNN is only more closely behind because they've also factored in a big part of their content. From what I remember, is the international international um, 
silos and and so forth but yeah definitely games is driving the big part for um new york times and we can see as well 75 percent of the traffic is 78 percent of the traffic is coming from the us and i mean so back back to what you were talking about and initially vahe is that the new york times has somewhat struggled in order to be able to capture that international audience versus CNN, where I would imagine that they have a larger global audience, that more of their traffic is segmented to other international markets and not heavily as weighted in the US. That's what I would assume. And I would also make the assumption, I could be incorrect, right? You should never assume things, but I'm going to do so on a podcast that will live on indefinitely. So who knows? You only live once, right? Let's uh, make mistakes. But when you call yourself the New York Times, Guess what? That's geo-specific centric to New York and the U.S. in general. So it doesn't have as much of appeal if I'm living in Indonesia. I don't really care about reading the New York Times. It, the name itself, it's like judging a book by its cover. That name is not as appealing, and it already pigeonholes you in to a particular region. So I wonder how much of a item that has been as far as an uphill battle for being able to reach other global parts of the world there has been a battle and um just talking a little bit back to my initial point that i was talking a little bit about what the publisher said about their strategy um i mean to give some context like i remember in 2013 14 uh, they tried to set up a bureau in australia build out the team they said they made a big announcement that they're going to be finally launching and covering more stories in the asia pacific region then all of a sudden no noise, no, like we, we barely hear and see anything in terms of local presence in Australia around that. And so what, when the reporter from the Reuters interview article that I read that was published at the time of this recording a few days ago, um, which was I think on the, on the 19th, they said, well, what's led to the success of New York Times? And they're like, we realized that for us, it's really important to do very well journalism on a national level. The fact that um, they'll be able US to national that. level, US, yeah, US national level, um, as opposed to going local, whether it's local in terms of different states, or it, I, I think it, it can even be put into the context of different countries, um, because for them that's what they recognize is that that audience wants, and that's what really helps them to to drive more traffic and revenue. Uh, where I think, um, like you said, right, there has the, the pre-definition uh, pre name of New York Times, the name in itself, and we know that's very US-centric as well. Um, we actually see as well many other international brands actually going into the US as well. So, like for example, The Guardian or many of the UK publishers, they realize that a lot of them are actually also reading about news that's happening in the US. And so rather than going out where a lot of people aren't seeing much incremental growth stay where you are double down grow your traffic like the new york times done and just focus on bundling and i think they're just continuing to build a mode around them instead of trying to stretch themselves and trying to like they're going to have naturally different reporters in different locations like one-off reports but they're not going to set up a like in the old days where you set up a bureau cost a lot of money you have to then pay a team of people to, to live in these countries and stuff they just maybe have a reporter or so that can cover various trending news that can fuel the main international site and um, and i mean going going to your point um thinking about 78 percent of the market of their traffic is from the us and we're talking about 220 million six, people coming to their site every single month 
the U.S. is not that big. I mean, the U.S. has, I don't know, 340 million people live in it, 350 million people. So that that's pretty amazing. Like their their amount of reach and covering like those national news articles, it's obviously working because people care about it. Just how broad and expansive their reach really is um, with 78% of that traffic coming from the U.S. So uh, it's pretty wild just to think about, you know, those numbers uh and yeah really 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 interesting um so thanks for sharing some of these numbers on similar web and uh ahrefs i'll quickly show you as well the numbers in terms of revenue because they they posted it as well writers have posted it so you can see as well that that strategy is working on this front and um it also helped them actually sustain their print uh, print subscription revenue as well um just quickly show you guys so 2013 you can see the numbers here in terms of the breakdown. You know, it didn't drop off too much, the print subscriptions, to be honest. Like the print advertising has dropped off, but that's expected. So but going from see... 675, is that Mi 600? Million. Million dollars in 2013 to 556 million in 2023. So yeah, that's an insignificant drop. Yeah, it's not too much of a drop. Uh, we've seen a big drop in, in terms of the print advertising from 506 to 187, but we see here wow. from 149 million in terms of digital subscriptions to a billion. Wow. And then last year, and then they jumped, double jumped up in digital advertising. That, that's even a small amount as well for them. So just, I, I, I think we could quantify, we could see in the quant, in quantify, um, sorry, we can see in terms of numbers what the impact has made 10 years later. Yeah. So. And you can just see, I mean, this this chart that you're showing, it just shows the increase of digital, right? Where digital was just a small like sliver of the whole piece of the pie. And then now it's it's the majority of that those digital subscriptions for millions of dollars that are coming in. Wow. Yeah. And I think I think as well, like sorry, I, I know I keep coming back to this point, but it's really showing that print's not dying off that you can, if you have like a, com a good bundling strategy that print can sustain itself and it can be positioned as a premium. Very true. Well. Yeah. So, well, I really like that point. Um, let, Jeremy, let's jump back a little bit in terms of their strategy. Um, so I want to look a little bit more into the article level as well, because they are sort of um, going through and making some changes, both in terms of, I, I read some other updates that they're looking towards doing not not the interview from AG, but um other news news that's happening. So we're seeing uh yeah they got she see the full article. Sorry, we're being blocked by. But hey, you're gonna have to put in your email. <laughs> They're tempting I'll, you. I'll do it for the team. I'll do it for the team. <laughs> you can see here, guys, as we've logged in into the um uh logged on and given the free email that. They have a good onboarding process as well. They remind you of their offer in case you want to uh, subscribe. And then they let you go through to, to the ad itself, or to the article itself. Um, so, yeah, so everyone, we're logged in into um, the uh, website now, now, now that we've used up the meter. And I guess what I want to share was, um, you know, they're, they're really, are, they're going to take some steps now to really uh, update their author profiles 
Um, so basically what they're doing is um, if you go to their byline pages of any of these authors, so let's, let's for example, go to Julian Barnes page, um, they're going to be working towards having an about contact featured in the latest section. Um, they're trying to essentially uh, explain more of the context around in first person, what they cover, their background, um, and a bit more of the details that would allow them to be verified. Um, there are a few different arguments around this, um, but they're doing this around. Um, first of all, some some part, part of misinformation to help verify that and to to talk about exactly and get to introduce um, the person behind the right behind the story on that as well, which was still very critical back in the day. And um, there could be some um, importance in terms of flagging expertise. Uh, obviously, EAT is not a ranking factor, but they're, they're trying to do their best the way they can to just really just provide more credibility to avoid misinformation on many of the articles. Um, and so there's, there's been a lot of experimentation with many authors and with many publications around how they use bylines and author pages. Um, in OnestDP, for example, we do have like reviewed by when we have an article that like the editing, editing process, we have that on our website like co-authors and who's who's reviewed and edited the article so it's just providing that transparency which i think from an audience point of view that provides that trust so ultimately what, what i do see moving forward which ties back into the the strategy that we were speaking about um that they're doing in terms of the opinion section having the um the top columnist here i think that maybe that maybe they want to actually you know if any of these people leave right it's going to be hard to replace these people and why not go and, and, and make that an organization-wide effort and empower everyone to to really be able to show their background uh, because everyone has a way of sharing their story and being able to um, report in, 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 a term, in terms of New York Times standards. So I think they're really trying to de-risk a little bit of the um, over-leverage of, of a few people that's doing not the, the majority of the, the coverage of, of the news and stuff. And that's that's a that's an amazing um, item that they've done. That initiative, when you have really detailed pages for each person who's contributed to an article, it automatically in today's day and age, where AI, you scratch your head and you wonder, oh, was this created by AI? Now this is another trust indicator. So your trust battery continues to get more filled up when you have your face and your name stamped to an article, right? So you can read who was involved in writing this article. And oftentimes it's not even just one person. It might be a collection. It might be two, three, four different reporters or journalists. So then it also shows you, wow, look how much time, energy, and effort probably went into this article. All these three or four individuals spent their time, energy, and effort in order to be able to produce this one article for me. If I'm thinking about that, it also increases my perception about the value that I'm getting. So then now when I'm going to subscribe, that cost of $25, let's say a month or $6 a month, whatever the cost might be, it seems like it's a great value, right? Because I'm getting so many people's time, energy, and effort into one article. Um, so I, I love what uh, you just called out there with the bylines. That's great. 
Yeah, no, thanks for that. Um, and I think that 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 will will continue to see many different iterations and perspectives from many publishers. But I think um, they are taking the next step in terms of um, there was a little there was a small sample study that not to digress too much, but there was a small study that I read from another SEO that was checking a sample of fifty sites and. One of the things that they're looking at is is what are the main changes that a lot of publishing sites have done for the past year, and a lot of them were like writing in first person, mm. and so I think so I think that the New York Times is just continuing that and allowing bigger publishers to take more of that risk to to see the impact of that, so that many mediums and smaller publishers can try that themselves. And so I encourage many of our listeners as well that are maybe small media publishers or even just a local publisher that is. Um, on there that not don't be afraid to just have multiple people byline the article and and just primarily focus on sharing your perspective and it's going to be for the long term it would pay out especially if there's more filters around perspectives showing up for the search results so yeah that's that's essentially i want to share that as well so i think that's that's going to be a continued part of the strategy um and that can also help sorry one more thing part of this as well is um it's also help um people engage and comment as well you can see that there's a big commenting feature where i don't think we've seen that i actually had a discussion with one of our clients yesterday as well like we don't we see many people not commenting um and typically the spammers and so forth now if you know who's actually writing the article the people that are writing the article and, the, and you know that they're going to jump into the comment threads then that's going to also and, and help you answer some of those questions and there you go that's going to be very valuable as well because you're gonna, be, you need to sign in to sign, uh, read the article, then you can engage with that person behind the paywall. So, so yeah. Um, and, and at the beginning and the end, right? They have the bylines, so they have correct. a little snippet of images and the people who contributed to the article. And at the end of the article, boom, it's talking a little bit more about the individuals, uh, which is great with a little bit extra spit. Exactly, exactly. No, thanks for thanks for adding on that point. I think the final thing that in terms of their strategy moving forward, um, that they're going to be, which everyone's looking into, and which is a still a hot topic um, that I've been reading up on as well. I think editor and publisher originally published this, but there's a few other sites now that have um, done a spin of that story, but with um, their own take of it as well. That um, New York Times is also going to be launching their own. AI, like they've already built, building out the AI department, AI team. So editorial team, sorry. So what that sort of means is um, we've seen many publishers in the past year talk about oh, what tool should I take? Uh, is like content generation, like like applying certain things as they're doing the job. Um, I, I try to understand the limitations around that and understand whether or not they can or can't do things without being uh, negatively impacted. And I think um, in terms of the article that I read, which we'll put into the comments, uh, what's really smart about how New York Times is approaching it, and, it, um, and, and uh, sorry, the New York Times is approaching that, which I realized as well when I was speaking to, we were, we're, sorry, as a short shout out, we're doing the WordPress week event next week as the time of this recording. So please join us if you do hear this. But um, Liam Andrew, CPO from Texas Jumping, was also talking about how they say that they want to consider how they, um use generative ai as a co-pilot as a as a product that can help assist doing things better not so much 
leaving it open for a tool for everyone to access. Because imagine, for example, you, you give entire team access to ChatGPT. Now, there's a workflow in terms of getting the article created to going live. And as you go and create the article live, your engineering team or your uh, product team have hands on that content. And then they might, for SEO purposes, add the old tag, the image title, and, you, and then, then they, they, you might see the output of that and see, see something random. And you'd be like to yourself, well, what's going on there? So what I think that, um, I think the reason why New York Times is creating that separate department that's going to help enable other journalists and publishers is to be able to co-pilot alongside AI so that they can become more, um, they can spend time doing more creative and doing more deeper journalism and, and providing the service as well. Um, having that data repository, for example, like for election coverage and being able to sell that as a service and, uh, and doing other things as well. I think that's going to give a big potential for these publishers. So I think many publishers should flip the switch of trying to look at quick wins to incorporate AI and then think about how can I co-pilot um, an offering a product or a process with that so that I can do things uh, more efficiently. Yeah, it's it's always good to be thinking about experimentations that you can implement in your business, right? Technology is continuously evolving. And oftentimes if you're not adopting the technology, your competition is, and at one point in time, you might get left behind. Exactly, exactly. So I think with that, Jeremy, any, any final takeaways or comments? I'll just say the final it. takeaway. Thanks so much for you being able to subscribe with your email and we'll still see as you're a free subscriber, their big thing is un enjoy unlimited access to all of the times. So they're still going for getting those dollars and those cents. You're just a free subscriber, Vahe, but they need your hard earned Australian dollars in order to be able to funnel their one billion plus dollars of subscription revenue that they're getting. So um, they're still going strong directly with that. And they're still going to remind you, uh, even if you have access to that free article, um, to be a, a pain subscriber. So yeah, with that, great job overall, New York Times. There's a lot to take in. I think we could do 10 more episodes just going into different segments of the New York Times. But I think this is a good good place to wrap. And Jeremy and Multidots, thank you so much for sponsoring this series. And it was great working with you guys on this and also being able to go through each of these publishing sites. And we hope, uh, you know, Jeremy and I together, we hope that you guys value this as well. And and let us know as we share this across our socials and in newsletters. If you'd like us to do this again, let us know. We're happy to consider doing another series. But until then, see you later. Bye, everybody. Special thanks to our sponsors and co-hosts Multidots for contributing to the seven-part WordPress teardown series. Be sure to subscribe to future episodes at stateofdigitalpublishing.com and join us for a deep dive into our upcoming WordPress Publisher Success Week starting on February 26 by visiting stateofdigitalpublishing.com slash WP hyphen week. Until next time.